your business deserves a network that's fast and reliable. So get internet from Comcast Business and add Comcast Business Security Edge. It helps block threats, plus we have 24-7 support. It's internet and advanced security made simple. Bounce forward with Comcast Business. Get started with a great offer from Comcast Business. For a limited time, ask how to get a $200 prepaid card when you upgrade. Call today to learn more. Prepaid card offer ends 2-28-21. Call for restrictions and complete details. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello, and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, my name is Adwithia Jean. I'm your co-host, joined by... Your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. Yes. So today we have a really awesome show. Um, over the past year, a year in which we saw some of the largest uprisings in support of racial justice and many years, in addition to a global pandemic that disproportionately impacted Black Americans, many Americans have undergone a reckoning on systematic racism and its impact. As a result, many organizations in the progressive advocacy space and policy spaces are incorporating a more intentional and intersectional racial equity or racial justice lens into their work. And to ensure that advocacy and policy on all issues from climate to reproductive rights to student debt acknowledges and addresses the way that race and racism further harms against Black, Indigenous, and other individuals and communities of color and basically harms us all. Uh, to talk to us more about what a racial equity framework looks like in practice, the resources that are available to organizations and individuals, and common missteps or misconceptions to avoid, we're joined by two really great expert guests. Um, first, we have Nia E. Martin Robinson, a founding partner at For the Culture. Hi, Nia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. And we are also joined by Crystal Leapart. Um, Crystal is an operations and policy associate at the National Organization of Black Elected Legislative Women. But Crystal will be speaking with us today out of her personal capacity as a gender justice, racial justice advocate. Hi, Crystal. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So again, thank you both for joining us. This is gonna be a great conversation. Um, to start us off, Nia, why did you decide to found to be the founder of the culture and what is the mission of the organization? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny when you were doing the intro to the show, I was like, is she reading this directly off of my notes? Uh, but, you know, for the culture uh, was, was started in 2020. Um, we are an equity and culture shift firm and are proudly founded by four women of color. My other partners are Jamor Gaffney, 
uh, Jesse Perez and Sabrina Lacani. And we, you know, we all came together really in the midst of what was in our own lifetime, one of the scariest, um, one of the scariest years that we had experienced. And we saw, like you said, that the uprisings, not just around racial justice, but around the challenging of anti-Blackness uh, specifically. Um, and so there were, you know, it was a year of, of rage, of futility, of fear, especially with so much of the Black community being ravaged by COVID. Um, but, but because of partners like, you know, or because of organizations like Movement for Black Lives um, and the Frontline, we were able to really see that this was also a year of resilience and hope and building and power. And so you know, we really wanted to be a part of, of the support system because we saw that there were a lot of organizations, schools, businesses, institutions, companies that were that were really looking for an opportunity to, 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 to set up a particular set of values, but also to use those values to move from rhetoric to reality. And we, you know, we wanted to be a part of that work to help folks shift their cultures and to, you know, to be a part of building those solutions. And so we've, we've all seen firsthand how companies and, and organizations can be strengthened when they make sure that their culture is more equitable, when they are centering the people who are, who are building that company. Uh, and we know that, that that shift is hard and we know why it can be hard. So, you know, we're, we're really excited about the, the prospect of being able to, you know, just be a small part of, of helping um, us to, to really regain our own humanity uh, as a culture and as a society. Wow, that's super great. Um, thank you so much. And Crystal, can you share a little bit about your background um, in this work and what you're currently working on? For sure. Um, so I really focus on um, solving issues from a policy perspective, especially for um, Black women and girls of all different types of experiences. And um, a lot of people, I think, sometimes don't attach that necessarily to solely racial equity work. Um, but the way that I look at it is if we're centering the people that are um, at the margins of the margins um, in which Black feminists teaches, teaches us to do, um, we're better fitted and better suited to solve issues that affect a broader a range of people than we would if we're just looking specifically at race issues or not centering anti-Blackness like Nia spoke about. Um, so I spent a lot of my time doing that. Um, I spent a lot of time um, getting a lot of feedback from um, Black girls about um, the ways that these issues affect them as well. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to Black women that are in positions of power and in political positions to make sure that um, anything that they're trying to put forth for legislation or bills is also equitable um, in every sense of the word. Um, and we've seen that there is an uptick of Black women that are interested in running for public office um, and pursuing um, just positions that are in advocacy fields. Um, but what I try to do is make sure that those people that are being ushered into those positions are actually centering the people that need to be centered um, when they're trying to think of solutions. And again, I think sometimes we have very, um, um, sometimes empty things that folks try to do through policy. Um, and we um, try to make sure that they're really things that have teeth on them and that can really affect long-term change for our communities. Thanks, Crystal. It's such, such just important work as you talk about not having sort of empty platitudes or empty promises, but but really trying to effectuate real change for the community. And it, it brings me back a little bit to something that Edwith was saying at the at the opening of the show, talking about how, you know, as we think about um, things as varied as climate change 
or um, student debt, for example, that we need to make sure that we're thinking about it also from the context of a racial justice perspective. And so, you know, I, I think for some folks who are listening, that might be a little bit of a surprise to say, like, you know, how, how is that connected or why, why is that, in fact, a racial justice issue? And we know that that, you know, having that racial justice lens is so important to inform all the work. And so actually, Nia, wondering if you can if you can just talk to us a little bit about what it means to use a racial justice lens to inform an organization's work and why it's so important to do so. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I I, I understand how how those connections are stretched for people, but you know, I think one of the the basic and almost you know sometimes one of the easiest ways that that we look at explaining it is really saying that like the entire foundation of this country was built on racial inequity whether that racial inequity and then the denial of bodily autonomy for for um, you know, for indigenous folks um, and for African people who were brought to this country. Uh, and so racism is it's inescapable. It's in every fiber of this country. Uh, there's no system, institution, place of higher learning uh, that that isn't that that that's immune from from racism. And so being anti-racist means being willing to challenge not just the manifestations of racism that we see happening outside of our institutions, but also you know, sort of pulling back the, the edges of the carpet and really digging into the ways that, that racism and white supremacy are showing up in our own institutions. Um, so for, for the culture, anti-racism is one of our core values. You know, and sometimes folks look at that and say, well, you know, you all are a DEI organization. Why would you just be, you know, sort of, why would just anti-racism be one of your values? And for us, it is because of that acknowledgement around the, the foundation and how racism is built into this country. Uh, and so therefore we have to look at the ways that it is impacting all of the other systems of oppression that are, that are hurting our folks. And while, we know that oppression takes a number of different forms and diversity, of course, is about more, more than just race. Uh, and so is you know, sustainable culture shift and DEI. But you know, for us, we really are committed to making sure that we're working to, to root out these systems of white supremacy and racism uh, and make sure that folks are actually thinking about what this means for, for race. Uh, and often because one of the things that we see is that this country, we don't as a society do very well in talking about race. And so it is often in sort of the list of things that people are willing to focus on around DEI, the last thing, because it is the most difficult. And so being an anti-racist really is also about being unapologetic and stepping into the discomfort of what it looks like to have these conversations collectively. Thanks, Nia. We'll be right back with more on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm your other co-host, Edwith Theogene. 
And we are talking today with two experts in the racial justice and gender justice field who are doing really incredible work to help organizations um, improve their work in and really increase impact by embracing and applying a racial justice lens to their advocacy and organizing work. We're speaking with Nia Martin Robinson and Crystal Leaphart. Thank you both for coming back with us. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, I think uh, as as most folks out there know, Generation Progress is is based here in Washington D.C. Um, although we're working remotely because of the pandemic, so folks are everywhere. But I'm still going to ask a, a somewhat of a, a D.C. related question here, and really turn to the world of political advocacy and organizing. Um, and uh, you know, Crystal, within this space in the world of political advocacy and organizing, what what are some concrete ways that organizations can apply a racial justice framework or a racial justice lens to the work that they're doing? Um, I think so. The biggest thing for me is always to kind of take a couple steps back. I think for people and groups and organizations that may want to incorporate um, a racial justice lens into what they're doing, um, if they didn't already start with one in the beginning of whatever they've been working on or doing, then I think it's sometimes very difficult um, to identify where they may be doing things wrong and having missteps. So the first thing is always taking a couple steps back, um, looking at what your current model is for racial equity. Um, if you've been an organization that has tried to use race-blind terms um, or not being intentional about helping particular folks that are um, victims to a lot of our systematic issues, that's something that I think people need to um, take stock of as well. Um, and if you're trying to improve on those things based off of you may not have had a good experience or you haven't really been good at doing those things, um, really figure out who you have at the table um, or who you can bring to the table um, to better give an analysis of where you currently stand on your racial justice equity um, mission or journey, if you will. Um, I think that after you get to that point, um, organizations should be very um, intentional and clear about um, who they're trying to help and how they're trying to help them, um, especially in the policy and advocacy space. Um, again, you want to try to take a really good stock of those race, gen race um, generic terms that you may use. Maybe it's poor, maybe it's low income, those kinds of things that we use to try to talk about race without talking about race. <laughs> we need to get very clear um, moving forward on who we're trying to help and how. Um, and to be honest, um, some of these groups may not be best fit to do that. So that's something I think people should try to step back and figure out as well. Um, who, are, who are you trying to help? How are you trying to help them? Um, do these communities need the kind of help that you're providing? Um, and then really figuring out who's at the table can, that can actually assist with those things and maybe hiring a firm to come in and help. Um, but I think it's just about being honest and clear about where the organization is and where they're trying to go. I mean, it's, it's such, such a broad, I think, stroke of the pen, and there's not, to me, any specific um, steps folks can take um, that are going to apply across the board, but it's really just about being clear about your own limitations and being clear about what you want to do moving forward as well. Thanks, Chris. So that, that makes total sense. And I, I want to just lift up um, two of the things that you said there and, and sort of pull them out just a little bit more because I thought they were so important. One um, is the fact that so-called race neutral terms are unhelpful, in fact, counterproductive. So if we're, you know, trying to use euphemisms to talk about race or being um, even I think sometimes uh, folks who who 
you know, use terminology like people of color, sometimes that's an appropriate terminology, but sometimes if we're talking about black folks in particular, then to use language that is specific to the black community, um, I think has been, has been some feedback that I've seen as well that's been really helpful. And so, you know, I think sometimes people think they can avoid talking about race and therefore not do harm, but that is in effect sometimes doing harm in and of itself. And then the the second thing that I um, that I heard you say that I that I wanted to pull out was that not everybody's uh, uh, suited to do the same work equally, and and really being able to assess what the organization's good at, what the relationship between the organization is and the communities that they're seeking to serve, and then identifying you know and assessing what what is my role at this table, what is my role in this space. So I um, I. I want to jump over to Nia and see if if you have thoughts on this question here as well. Yeah, actually, actually, I really do. You know, one of the things, and and like Crystal said, it's true. You know, I think that sometimes folks go to, to firms, you know, like, like ours and, you know, are thinking, well, what, well, what's the package that you have to offer? Almost like we're a spa, right? Like what's the package? Give us the, the one size fits all. And that, that isn't ever really possible, even if you're looking at, the same kinds of organizations. Okay, so it's really about thinking, being very specific, and thinking about the unique needs that organizations have. Um, but I think the one thing that I do think that all folks need to do first and foremost is just get really clear about your willingness to jump in and actually do this work, and to understand that 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 jumping in and doing this work in a real and intentional way um, is about being unapologetic about it. It's about being transparent. Uh, and it's about being really vulnerable. You know, when Crystal talked about like really thinking about what your vision is, part of that is also being very clear and honest about where you actually are. You know, if I'm trying to get to Target and I put in the wrong starting address, I'm probably not going to get to the Target. Um, but if I put in the right starting address and I'm really clear about where I'm going, then I'm going to have the map for how I need to move forward. And so in order to actually achieve the vision in order in order to actually achieve the vision you know that folks are setting forward it also means that we have to be really honest about where we are and uh, just just one more point Brent what you said um, sort of feeding off of, of crystal um, this piece about the the erasure that happens when we use terms like people of color sometimes um, is really true and so I always say to folks if you say black when you mean black right and be unapologetic about that. Yes, I totally agree with that, Nia. There are lots of times, I think we've seen this movement where now we use the term like the BIPOC, like before it was people of color and now it's black and indigenous. And that is also a big movement to try to center black and indigenous people um, within the people of color conversation. But I do think that there's this level of, there's intention, but erasure that um, connects to it. Um, we only have like a couple of minutes, but Nia, I want to ask, um, what are some of the blind spots or missteps that organizations should be aware of as they begin to more consciously apply this framework? So, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of, one of the things that we have that we really try to do, um, at, for the culture is, is think about instead of using terms like blind spot that can, that can sometimes that not sometimes, but that are, um, are ableist. Uh, we, you know, try to think about what are some of the challenges, or like you said, the missteps that that folks have. And I think that 
Um, if I looked at sort of two big ones, it would be one that thinking that this work can be done with just like a one and done, like come mm-hmm. do training and then we'll be fine. Um, and then the other piece is like really putting this work on the back of the peel of the people of color or the black and indigenous people who are working inside of these of these organizations, right? Because ultimately this work is all of ours to do. And the work, the work that we need to do around challenging these systems of oppression is not social welfare that we need to do for folks on the margins. It's the work that we need to do to right. our collective humanity. Awesome. Thank you. We'll be right back after this short break. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hello. Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwin Theogene. And I'm your other co-host, Brent J. Cohen. We are joined by Crystal Leapart and Nia E. Martin um, to talk about applying a racial justice framework. Uh, we're going to jump in back into our amazing conversation and talk with Crystal. Crystal, you and I have talked personally about um, applying racial equity lens like on the back end within an organization and also on the front end with policy. Um, are there any resources you would recommend an organization consult in developing a plan to use a racial e- equity lens to inform their work? Um, yes, I have one um, resource that I really enjoy using all the time. Um, I like using this one because I think sometimes it's hard for organizations um, and even in the policy world, but um, at the core organizations and people to identify the ways that uh, white supremacy show up in our organizations and in our policy um, and just how we operate and function in general. Um, So there is a resource that folks can Google. It is the elements of white middle-class dominant culture. Um, And it literally just shows all the ways that um, the, the ways that uh, the things that we treasure within our society, which is, of course, based off of a white supremacist framework, show up in how we do our work, how we try to um, offer solutions to problems, how we um, think that, you know, folks that may have more money or more privilege, depending on the kind of privilege you're talking about, um, can speak better on behalf of the communities that are dealing um, with the racism and with all of the systems of oppression. Um, so if folks Google that resource, um, it'll pop up. Um, it's a four-page document, um, and it is full of um, things, that the, the pillars of the culture, but also antidotes, um, which is what I love because it shows you ways that you can show up better um, for racial equity in our communities every day. Um, one big thing that I think we always make a mistake with is, um, in addition to trying to move too fast through the process that Nia talked about, Um, was getting to the acknowledgement part. And with this document, people are able to acknowledge how these things are showing up, but it also gives them those extra steps to make sure that they're not getting stuck in the acknowledgement part. Now, granted, acknowledgement is important um, and really reflecting on where we are and where we want to be is important. Um, But sometimes I think when people are thinking of diversity and inclusion and equity, especially from a race lens, um, that becomes the bulk of the work for people because it's so much hand-holding. Um, but with this document and with that resource, people are able to hold each other accountable towards moving towards something different than what they currently have. That's great. Um, oh, go ahead, Brent. Sorry, Edith. So one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the conversation and I'm thinking about the fact that, so we like, as we talk about 
um, white supremacy and we're talking about organizational culture, I think one of the things that strikes me is is we're not we're not just and most listeners are going to know this already, but we're not just talking about people who who harbor racist views. We're not just talking about interpersonal racism. We're not even just talking about implicit bias, which I think a lot of folks, especially in progressive spaces, have come around to and really understand as saying like, okay, I may not be consciously racist, but because of years of socialization, I still have these these sort of implicit views that contain bias. But when we're talking about, and when you're talking about um, sort of white supremacy, or we're talking about the foundation of the country um, uh, being based quite literally on, on racial inequity or systemic racism, we're talking about something much broader than interpersonal racism or implicit bias. Is that is that right? And thinking about how the organizational culture sort of reacts or interacts with, with that? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Um, I think sometimes people um, hear about things like the coup on January 6th or the KKK or whatever the case may be, more extreme examples. But those examples um, are not so much outliers because it does happen more than people think. Um, but there are just every everyday ways that um, that white supremacy culture shows up. Um, and anyone can reiterate it. It's not just something that white people do. Um, that's why we think of it as a cultural piece and not just something that can be easily pointed to and identified. There are just little things every day in everybody's lives that live under the same, um, again, values that show up. And it's only it's only because of intentional undoing um, and really facing what's going on that people can kind of shift the, shift themselves personally. And then we can shift organizations. Yeah. And Mia, um, can you add anything else to what Crystal shared? Yeah. And I think that what, you know, part of what Crystal saying that that's so important is I, I live in Southeast Louisiana. You know, I see the folks driving around with with Confederate flags, huge, the biggest Confederate flags I've ever seen in my life. I've seen in Louisiana. Um, I think Tampa can beat you. I saw one in Tampa. But I think we probably could. Um, but I also think that the ways that I am, the ways that I experience you know, racism that keep me up at night aren't necessarily the blatant ones. They aren't the, you know, the nasty t-shirts that people wear or the, or the disgusting bumper stickers. It's, you know, it's, did that person pull their kid away from me in a store? You know, it's, it's the little things that I, that I rack my brain about. And that's why, you know, microaggressions are called death by a thousand cuts, because there are these things that, that happen that we have to rack our brains about as, you know, as, as folks of color, as a you know, black person in particular, that often people sort of, you know, turn back on us and look at us and say that, that, that we're being too sensitive. We are pulling the race card. Um, when really what it is, is we're just, you know, trying to live and not just to live to survive, but to, to live to be able to, to actually thrive, you know, and to have a, a life of dignity. And so, you know, paying attention to and understanding how these things you know, show up, how racism and white supremacy show up. In, in interpersonal relationships and, and in the systems that we exist in and move through every day, you know, is crucial. And you know, if you sort of dig into many of the structural issues that we see in our in our cities and states and in this country, it, it you do not have to dig far to find race at the core of that. Yes. And I really love the statement that you made about death by a thousand cuts because that is that's something that happens all across this country. A lot. And I think that also brings to the next question um, that I have for you, Nia, which is like, how would you say workplace culture impacts an organization's work? 
Um, what kind of culture shifts should organizations prioritize as they also work to apply racial justice frameworks to their work? And the reason why I connect that question to the death by a thousand cuts is because if an organization has a particular, like if their values are not being lived within the workplace, um, but they say that it's something that shows up in the work, I feel like there's a huge disconnect when that happens. So if you can speak just a little bit about workplace culture and the impact of that on the organization's work. Edward, I feel like you're you're in my head because what you just said around the disconnect between who the, the front we choose to show to the world and the way that we show up internally for each other was like my exact answer. Right. And so if you're if you have you know a group of staff who are you know continuously put out in, into the world to tout a particular set of of views and values, but you know that's that group of staff feels mistreated. They feel not seen. They aren't heard. They don't feel like they can show up to work as their full self. Then you aren't actually living those values. And I feel like we saw that a lot um, with some you know, different corporations and institutions in 2020. You know, after you know the the, the disgusting murder of of George Floyd, after you know the invasion that happened that that resulted in the loss of life for Breonna Taylor, it, everybody was putting up a list of values about how they, you know, how they were with black people. Right. And then you would, you could sort of, and what I started to do was go to the websites of those institutions and corporations. I won't name any names here, but and they would have these very long values and, you know, wax poetic about how they felt about black people, how they were challenging racism. And then their entire boards were white. Their leader, all of their leadership was white. Their senior leadership teams, their C-suites were white. Um, and you might even be lucky if there was, you know, if somebody might have thrown a woman in there somewhere. But so it was very clear that the values that they put forward were not the values that they were actually living. You know, when we when we work with when we work with folks, you know, it, it's often important to say as we dig into this work around equity, it's important to know that this is actually about challenging and pushing the status quo. And part of that means that we have to be thinking about. What are we willing to give up? Once we acknowledge and recognize that we have this privilege, when is the time that we are willing to step aside if we're actually trying to make real sustainable change? Then part of that is it's not just about saying, yeah, I know I have privilege. It's about utilizing that privilege to make sure that other folks are put in the space of leadership and understanding that, that the way in the status quo that has been carrying our work can no longer exist. Yeah, can no longer exist and really making that challenge and challenging ourselves. And I think, you know, one of the things that I wonder about, and this will this will sort of be a, a last thought here as we as we go off to break and then we'll come back with our two guests, is just all those companies and all those corporations who put out those statements, and I think many of them believed it. What I want to know is what have they done since then? And and you know, as as we just talked about, you look at their boards and you look at senior leadership and you know, you didn't necessarily see black faces represented in those spaces. Has that changed? Was was this a wake up call? Did the racial justice movements over the summer cause folks to rethink where they are and what their privilege is, or is it still the same thing? And we'll we'll be right back here after this break on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. 
Hello, and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm your other co-host, Adwith Theogene. And we are talking today about how organizations can and why they should apply a racial justice or racial equity lens or framework to the work that they're doing. And we're speaking with two experts in the field, Nia E. Martin Robinson, founding partner of For the Culture, and Crystal Leaphart. Thank you both so much for coming back with us here. Uh, so, you know, I we really appreciate the conversation that we've had and, 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 and how you both have broken down um, everything from microaggression to systemic racism to really thinking about the impact that it can have at an organizational level. And so for folks who might be at home listening and thinking about, you know, this con- this conversation in the context of their own work, um, is, Nia, just starting with you, what, what advice would you have for, for young advocates and organizers who want to better incorporate a racial justice framework in their work? or broach this conversation from within their own organizations? Um, I I think the the first piece of advice, and I'm just trying to think about this as talking to my my younger self, um, is just to to know that you absolutely have a right to demand and call for a workplace that sees and honors and values you, right? And that as you start this process of, of wanting to shift the culture inside of where you work, there will be times when you are challenged, where folks push back on you, and I and I and I know because I even still have to experience, I still experience it at times for myself, where that challenge, you know, if you as you are doing this work, you can internalize those challenges and take it to mean that that your dignity um, and who you are is is less than, but it isn't, um, and so this is just the, the point to remember that that as we have all experienced racism and white supremacy, that it has eroded all of our humanity. Uh, And so when folks are coming at you with these challenges, when folks are saying that we just don't have the time or the resources or the capacity to focus on equity, um, to focus on race equity, that 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 is not about you. That is about, that's about them. Uh, and that to make sure that you have a squad, you know, both inside of the organization and outside of the organization, a group of people that you, you know, can go to when you need a soft place to land, a group of people who are willing to unapologetically organize with you and push forward with you so that you don't have to take all of that work on by yourself. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Nia. Crystal, uh, would you like to jump in with any with any advice you might have for for young advocates who are either looking to expand their work in this area or sort of broach it for this for the first time? Um, yeah, I can just say really quickly, the first thing that came to mind is pack your patience. Um, it's not going to be an overnight process at all. If you're trying to um, organize for better uh, work situation or policy situations or anything of that um, nature, anything that's worth it is going to take a while. Um, But what I will say, if we're talking to young um, Black folks and people of color um, across the board, um, just be careful in how much of that work that you take on without it being um, a part of your job or part of um, something that you're super, super passionate about and want to work on. Um, Because what I've noticed, um, I haven't worked for any organization or companies that are not already majority Black. Um, But what I've noticed with friends that are in organizations that are not majority Black or 
black led, um, they get pigeonholed sometimes into doing the um, diversity, inclusion and equity work. Um, and that's not a part of their job. So just be very careful about those things as well. Um, and to make sure that the job is not taking advantage of um, your passion or your interest in wanting a better work environment and a better society in general. Um, so I'll just keep it there. Just just be very aware of your patience. And um, if it's not in your job description, you don't have to do it. Thanks, Crystal. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and, and, and speak to specifically to white folks out there who might be listening and thinking about how they want to um, that they that they want to do something, but may not necessarily know what to do. And really just say, you know, we have a responsibility. This work cannot fall on, should not fall on um, Black, Indigenous, or other people of color to carry the entire weight and burden of this. Um, it is not their responsibility. White supremacy was not created by Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, and so, you know, for white folks who are out there listening, we're thinking like, okay, I want to do something. Well, honestly, doing doing something is better than doing nothing in this space and really talking with folks and figuring out how can you stand up? How can you be an ally? How can you help advance this conversation with your organization is hugely important. And really being open to continuously learning in this space is something that is so important as well. Getting, getting quote unquote dinged or getting corrected um, because you may have said the wrong language or used the wrong language at some point doesn't mean that you shy away from it. It means someone's investing and your knowledge and leadership in this space, excuse me, your knowledge in this space so that you can come forward and be a better ally going forward and really having that sort of learning and openness um, uh, is just hugely helpful. And, and so I would encourage, especially white listeners out there not to shy away or back away from this. This is also about you. We are also negatively impacted by racism and white supremacy. And we also have uh, perhaps even more so a responsibility in this space. And so uh, just wanted to add that here as well. Um, Edwith, I don't know um, if you had other thoughts here, or if we should start, if we should, we want, we certainly want to make sure that um, people know where they can find more information um, about the the excellent work that our guests are doing, but want to turn to you first in case you had, you had thoughts you wanted to jump in on. Um, I don't have any thoughts. I really agree and echo a lot of the stuff that Nia and Crystal have shared. Um, I definitely think that people of color, black people in particular, like, you may show up to go to work because you work in accounting and then they see you and think that you're the person to solve and fix the diversity issues of your organization. Um, <clears throat> so that's just something that Crystal shared that I wanted to echo. And another piece uh, that Nia brought up, a lot of the times when you try to make change within your organizations, they always say, we don't have enough time or we already have gone too far in the work. And I think one of the tools of white supremacy is to operate from a space of scarcity. There's always time, you know, and I think we need to just kind of shift our focus to working from a place of abundance. And um, that provides us more opportunity to push forward and widen our vision. Um, and just to like, since we do have only a limited amount of time, I'd love to pass the mic over to Nia to tell us a little bit more about where we can learn and find out more about our organization. Sure. Um, so for the culture, you can find us uh, online at shiftyourculture.org. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Shift Your Culture on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you and your amazing partners. I was really excited when Neil launched uh, this organization. So we're excited to see what more can come. And 
Crystal, can you tell us a little bit more about where people can find out about some of the awesome projects that you're working on and things that you're doing? Um, yes, um, pretty much everything that I'm doing, I share on Instagram. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me right now. Um, so my Instagram is Crystalisms. Um, it's K-R-Y-S-T-A-L-L-I-S-M-S. Um, and if you search Crystal Lee Part, I'll pop up as well. But um, I do a lot of writing, especially around Black women in politics um, and voter suppression. So you can find some things on there. Um, and if you just have any other general questions, I'm happy to answer them as well on Instagram. Crystal, didn't you share a recent blog? What was the, where can people find the recent blog that you just put out there? <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, my friends have been getting on me about sharing things that I'm doing. Um, so it's on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Um, there's just a blog about um, this notion that Black women um, are the backbone um, of the Democratic Party and also the gesture of the thank yous that happened post-election. Um, I just spent some time kind of breaking down um, kind of how those concepts have been bothering me, um, especially the whole saving the country piece, which I think ties in perfectly to this conversation um, of uh, using the labor of folks, but not really rewarding them with the um, uh, the policy particular uh, solutions to their issues that they're dealing with. So um, that is on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics and other things um, you can find on Instagram as well. Thank you, Crystal. You know, as we as we are sort of coming up here on the end of the month of February, and it's sort of the time when so many organizations and people um, consciously celebrate Black history, just want to remind everybody that Black history is, in fact, American history. It should be celebrated uh, day in, day out, 12 months a year. Um, glad that it gets the attention it deserves uh, during the month of February, but it shouldn't be limited to the month of February. Uh, and this is work that needs to happen 365 um, days a week. So really, really appreciate Crystal and Nia coming on with us to uh, speak with us, to share their expertise and experience with us and our listeners. Appreciate. Thank you both for the enlightening conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So that is that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to today's guests, Nia E. Martin-Robinson and Crystal Leapart, our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our communications manager, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners, make sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at GenProgress. And we'll talk to you again on our next remote Generation Progress takeover of The Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks, everybody. Whatever you're funny, Peacock's got it exclusively. Bears beats The Office on Peacock. Stream every moment from Dunder Mifflin and explore bonus extras and exclusives. Plus, if you're looking for more classic hits, you can stream every episode of Parks and Recreation, Two and a Half Men, and every season of SNL. In the mood for something brand new? Check out Peacock's original comedies, The Amber Ruffin Show, and Saved by the Bell. Whether you're craving a new binge or familiar fave, you can find tons of comedy hits on Peacock. Get started for free at PeacockTV.com. In Serpentine, psychologist Alex Delaware and detective Milo Sturgis search for answers to a brutal, decades-old crime in this electrifying psychological thriller from Jonathan Kellerman, the number one New York Times best-selling master of suspense. This is Delaware Sturgis at their best, traversing Los Angeles and digging up the past in order to bring a vicious killer to justice. Serpentine is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold.